Hello, welcome to the edited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version of this conversation, then you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become one of our Patreon supporters, uh, which you can do for as little as $1 an episode. That's one US dollar, and obviously it will depend on which of our economies is declining more, uh, how much that actually works out in pounds, uh, euros, etc. <laughs> Hello, welcome back to Book Shambles. As we mentioned last week, Josie is now on maternity leave. So we've got lots of episodes coming up that uh, feature different co-hosts, guest co-hosts, the ones we did at Albert Hall with Sarah Kendall co-hosting with Robin. We've got some science specials that Helen Chersky co-hosted. And today's episode is what we recorded at the London launch of The Happy Brain, Dean Burnett's new book. So this is Robin in conversation with Dean at that event. And apologies, the sound goes uh, a little bit skew-if in a few places on this episode. We just had some issues recording off the sound desk at the venue on the night. But it's mostly fine, just warning you, there's a few places where it's a, a little bit weird and peaky. And also thank you to everyone who came along to Space Shambles on uh, last Friday night at the Albert Hall and everyone who sent messages and emails and tweets and stuff about it. Thank you very much. We're very humbled that uh, everyone enjoyed the the night so much. Uh, We're going to try and do something like that again uh, in the future. Watch this space. Uh, But in the meantime... We have since announced Nine Lessons is back for 2018. Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People, a slight name change this year, will be at King's Place in London for four nights in December the 14th, the 15th, the 19th and the 20th. You can go to cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons for details on that. There's some early bird ticket prices out now and that will be each night will be hosted by Robin with lots of different special guests including Josie uh, Dr Carl Helen Chersky Matt Parker Monica Grady Greg Foote lots and lots of people are going to be there so do check that out and and as always uh, if you've got a few spare quid do consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash bookshambles that's how we keep making the show that's how we can afford to keep doing it and my book, the uh, which is all about kind of a mixture of uh, birth, death, laughter, inner voices and social anxiety, amongst other things, is uh, available for pre-order now from Atlantic Books. And that book is I'm a Joke and So Are You. And now here is this week's episode. Uh, welcome to uh, this. Thanks very much for coming, by the way, because it's lovely and sunny, and uh, which is very dangerous, though, as well, when it's lovely and sunny. So uh, you're going to have really interesting train journeys back with people who have a mixture of cider addiction and sunstroke. So well done instead for choosing uh, the, uh, the intellectual path. And the bombs are probably going to fall soon as well, so it's better we're underground. And uh, so on that happy note, uh, please welcome the author of The Idiot Brain and now the author of The Happy Brain, Dean Burnett. Thank you, Robin. Um, just so, like I uh, said, like we forgot to plan how to start this. So I'd just like to start by reading the first paragraph of The Idiot Brain, if no one minds. But if they do mind, it's a bit tough because I've planned nothing else. It would be nice if people minded you reading your book yeah. at a book event specifically for your book. Yeah. I think that that would suggest that something had gone I, horribly it's wrong. It's nice to read a lot of the people who don't know why they're here. Because when I actually <laughs> did the Cardiff launch event, we were actually right next to the Lady Boys of Bangkok, and I, there was potential for some serious overlap there. For... 
<laughs> but there we go. I love I'm that, not... just them look at you. Haven't the lady boys <laughs> of Bangkok let themselves go? Yes. <laughs> so the fringe event. <laughs> okay, so, as a wise philosopher once said, happiness, happiness, the greatest gift that I possess. <laughs> there we go, it's that sort of crowd. <laughs> Aristotle, I think, or possibly Nietzsche, sounds like something he'd say. No matter, the point is valid, happiness is important. That uh, paragraph there, out of everything I've written, and I've written a lot, most of it rubbish, but a lot of it, um, including my thesis and everything, that's the paragraph I'm most proud of, because I think that <laughs> represents me as a person better than anything, because it sounds clever. Uh, if you know anything about philosophy, Aristotle, big fan of happiness. He was all about, he loved it. He was, well, most people do like it, but he, he was particularly, or think it, was, it was the highest achievement of the human existence. There was a point of our existence. Happiness was all about Aristotle's views, whereas Nietzsche, famous nihilist, very much nothing has any point, known to be a rather gloomy individual. And um, so the idea that that sounds like something he'd say is nonsense. So if you have a bit of philosophy, you know that's a joke. Uh, not a good joke, but it is definitely a joke. <laughs> and it's not funny, but it's clever. That's, again, that represents me quite well. But it's sort of thing, if you look even closer at it, because this, this already got um, confirmed to be picked up by American publishers and Canadian before it was finished, because the first one did well over there, so they just bought, bought it. And I love the idea of some sort of real pedantic American person or Canadian person looking up that quote and finding out it is uh, by... Um... Oh, that's not working. Oh. <laughs> you pressed it twice. Go back one. There. There it's a Ken Dodd lyric, essentially. <laughs> so there'll be American people like looking up the philosophy of Doddism, which I really quite like. <laughs> you know, stand around tickling sticks and tax evasion. But that's... Um, that's I, I just like that, because like, the closer you look, the stupider it is. And that, I think, represents me quite nicely. So... Um, <laughs> Yes, that's what we'll be doing tonight. So anyway, thank you for indulging that. And there we go. That's all you need to know. Um, and you can go now in if you tribute wish. to Ken Dodd, this will be a nine-hour session <laughs> of him talking yeah. about his yeah. book. So It um, will feel like that. I can get a lot in a short space of time. See, this is an interesting thing about the fact that you have done a book about happiness, because we were talking about this before we came in here, and you've done it about seven times already in two minutes, which is kind of apologise, mm -hmm. uh, a kind of level at that self-awareness, which is, uh, go, oh, I hope this is all right. And you, you've done that a lot already, and this mm. is part of what the book looks at. Part of, of, mm. of what you've examined is what are the things in our existence which are there to hamper contentment and, uh, and ultimately happiness. So first of all, as, as someone who can be a, a, a real worrier, why were you drawn to having done the idiot brain? Why was happiness the next one you wanted to do? Well, the actual story about how it came about is not as logical as you might think. Um, there's no logic to it whatsoever. It's that I never planned, well, first off, I never planned to write a second book. I never planned to write a first one. And that, it all happened through serious and ridiculous circumstances. I was uh, trying to do some science-based comedy in Cardiff, but there's no audience for it, or a small one. Uh, I met you once, I was like, oh my god, I want to be that guy. And uh, here we are. Um, <coughs> I like the poster, I, I said the poster for both of us, like, I'm next to Robin, I look cheerful, he looks quite grumpy. It looks like, like a before and after ad for diet and hair growth pills, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but the guy who's got hair and his lost weight doesn't seem very happy about it. Yeah. So like, it's like one of those morality tales, be happy with what you've got and so on. So that, that's un unrelated to this. <laughs> Yeah, this so is one of the loosest interpretations <laughs> of Waiting for Godot, but I'm enjoying it. <laughs> it gets dark very quick. But it was, um, so I started doing a science blog, it got picked up, the Guardian ended up sort of putting me on their roster, which was really nice, and then an agent got in touch and said, I don't know if he's in the room even, but said, I like your blog, do you ever think about writing a book? And I hadn't, not because I didn't want to, because I never thought I'd have the opportunity. I'm a working class Welsh Valley boy, we don't write books, we can barely read them. But that's <laughs> cultural misconception, we're very good at it, we just choose not to. And... 
so I thought, well, I, I, I'll have a go. It, you know, it seemed like an opportunity to use. And I didn't know what to write about, so I thought it'd be my one chance of doing it. So I splurged all my saved-up knowledge on the first book, thinking, right, a few people read the blog, will buy it, some libraries, it might be useful for some A-level students. That's it. You know, we'll all move on with our lives. No one will talk of it again. I did that. I'll be, you know, I'll move on with my other career. And it went a lot better than expected. Some uh, Hollywood A-listers picked it up. And then they kept asking, what's your second book going to be about? So we need a second one. I thought, well, I, what? I, I, no, <laughs> what? You know, difficult se second al album when you're not a musician. Like, <laughs> I don't play any instruments. What, what is this? Uh, so I ended up sort of asking a lot of friends and colleagues and people like, on the street and Starbucks baristas, like, well, <laughs> what should I write the next book about? You know, you know my work if you do. And what should, what, what should I do? I don't, I'm, I'm at a loss. And they gave me lots of different ideas. And I liked a lot of them, but none of them seemed to enough for a full book. It was like, this would make a good blog post. I would make a good chapter of a book, that sort of thing. And I kept saying, well, that doesn't work, that doesn't work. And people would lose their rag and say, look, just at the end of the day, just write about whatever makes you happy. And the very literal person took that absolute face value. And um, <laughs> so yeah, there we go. I've done exactly that. Uh, yeah, so like then I looked up, sorry, I was curious, looked up what makes you happy, blah, blah, blah. And like, there's so many different w ridiculous claims about it. The key to happiness is one a week, and it's always utterly ridiculous like uh, you've got haven't you the, the, the yeah, this, in, this, in the first yeah. part of this book you have some yeah, of the I think few, predominantly yeah. from one specific tabloid yeah. newspaper I'll skip these um, other ones here I don't need that there's me whoopee there uh, like this one um, forget cash how sex and sleep are the key to happiness so forget cash literally can't be happy if you remember cash um, <laughs> it's not allowed but also sex and sleep are really important and again new parents very grumpy for that reason because they don't get either of those things um, but then kid happiness start with 50,000 a year salary. So forget cash, but make sure you have 50,000 of it. And I, I, again, I only read the headlines. Like, does that mean you have to start earning at 50,000? Because most people don't. So that's why nobody's happy at all. There's lots of questions to be asked here. This is a real one. Why the secret to happiness is having 37 things to wear, <laughs> specifically 37. And again, what counts as a garment? I was wondering, do socks count? Is one pair of socks one garment or two? <laughs> you have enough socks for a week, that's half your ration gone. If you lose a sock then, or if you get, find, it, find an odd sock, are you then unhappy instantly? Is that why people get so annoyed when they find an odd sock? My personal favourite was uh, key to happiness for over 55s, buying a new pet and going for a day trip with lunch at the pub every month. I don't want to know what study was conducted to find that very specific outcome. And also the wording is confusing because it does look like you have to also buy a new pet every month. <laughs> so eventually you're either going to have two options. You're going to have a house full of animals. <laughs> When you're over 55, stinking of shit and all that, and that's going to be a stressful existence. Or every time you have a new pet, you've got to euthanize the old one, <laughs> and that's going to be stressful as well. And I don't think a monthly well, medicine is going to help. Well, that's the lunch, help. isn't it? Yeah. That's what you oh. do. Oh, yeah. So you a loophole. Excellent. It's a very simple because, system. But yeah. Abby, Abby, you've got to I'm surprised you didn't realize how easy that oh, was. But, but you've got to find a pub who will cook your cat then. And that's. It's one of those. Yeah. There's a lot of those theme pubs going yeah. around. Well, yeah. Post Brexit, that'll be quite yeah. common. Not on the M4. There's yeah. a lot of road yeah. around and there. These are all um, um, Daily Mail headlines. They're still on the site. You can still find them. Uh, I checked yesterday. They're also there. Yeah, but don't go and find them. It increases yeah. their hit rate and their <laughs> yeah. ad revenue. Yeah. Um, so this is the, in, in terms of the, the, this book is different to Idiot Brain. For those of you, I presume pretty much everyone here has read read the Idiot Brain, which is that uh, is each chapter, as you said, is like an extended blog post. Whereas this yeah. has some sense of of, of narrative. Mm. This is a, more of a story. Which, and, it, and we start off, I think, in one of the, the very interesting and much debated areas of, of neuroscience, which is the use of uh, having an fMRI. I mean, mm. you, you go to think, well. Can we scan a brain and find out how 
that's the bit that lights up with happiness. So what are the issues there? Because I know that when, basically, when MRIs were first put in, uh, every university had to go, we better use these a lot, it costs a bloody fortune. <laughs> yeah. And then people go, we better make it look like this has been very important as well, mm. and everything's been discovered. So what happened when you decided, right, the happy part yeah. of the brain? Well, I live um, just on the road from Kubrick, Cardiff University Brain Research and Im Imaging Centre, which is like one of the world-leading ones, which is massively convenient because I don't like to go far. Uh, and uh, I actually was a member of the psychology department and then I left and uh, three months later they built that and it felt like spite that did this. <laughs> <It's like, laughs> like, oh, he's gone guys, bring all the good stuff. <laughs> so, you know, but I understand I wouldn't let me run one either. And um, so I ended up talking, like asked C C uh, Professor Chris Chambers, fellow blog Guardian writer, and he said, oh, can I talk to you about this? Because I know you have actually, he's, he's in charge of like big group of studies, all that, and uses the machines and I, I it is a sort of like a bit of poetic license and that I sort of knew it didn't quite work that way, but I didn't know why and I wanted to ask him about it and I did. And it's sort of so many different variables in that. That's not how fMRI works at all. Like it's a lot of it to do with the media representation in that they put you in a machine, you think about, you know, the ones I've seen are like, this is the center of the brain which works for why you like Apple products. This one, it's, it's your voting preference. This is the one for the face of a dog or like stuff like that. It's like they put your machine, show you something, that lights up, hey, that's that bit. And it's nowhere near that direct. There's so many different things at work. It's like number crunching through the roof. It's really, you can, you can choose how to analyze it. You get different results each time. And people do that and they get good results. And then if they use this way, bad results, they use that one. So obviously they pick that one. And they can't do many subjects. It takes such a long time to actually use them. And something else okay, didn't end up in the book because I thought it got a little bit, um, I would say, blue. Uh, in that, I actually asked Chris, like, because the chapter on sex and relationships, and there's lots of studies on to how the orgasm works in the brain, but mostly on with women. And I read somewhere it said that they try to do it with men. They can do it with men sometimes, but <coughs> it, it doesn't last long enough to, <laughs> 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 to produce a reliable signal. And I thought, I asked Chris, is that true? He goes, yeah, it is true, but also. When you're in an MRI machine, you have to keep your head really still. And when, I don't know if you know how the male orgasm works, it, it involves a lot of movement. And not as much for the women. And we said also with a woman, you can have repeat samples. So, oh, yeah. so, so there we go. That was... Um, this, in terms of... I, I was talking to Sarah Jane Blakemore, who uh, is a well-known neuroscientist, whose mm. recent book, in, Inventing Ourselves, is about the teenage brain. Mm. And at one point she said the problem with an fMRI is just... It's a very broad canvas. And that her general belief, in terms of brain scanning now, until we get to the point where we are able to look at millimetre sections of the brain, we are able to study it on that scale, we are generally just kind of going, it kind of happens here, but everything else is working as, as well. Yeah. And, it, and it, so it is, there's not much. I mean, do you think that's fair that we, are, we have reached perhaps a problem stage in terms of fMRI teaching us more? Yeah, I think the resolution needs to go up a lot in order to... Re like, that's why I, like, the whole idea of me going into an fMRI machine and becoming happy, back to the master... Uh, <laughs> that, that's personal, don't worry about that. Um, it's like that wouldn't have worked, even if it was loads of people doing it, because just because you... Like, uh, how I experience happiness would be different than how someone else does it. I think, to be honest, specify that it's more of an umbrella term for lots of different sensations. You can be... You can be really content, you can be relaxed, you can be euphoric, you can be thrilled. These are all ways to be happy. You can't be euphorically relaxed, perhaps, or you can't be thrillingly content. That doesn't really, they don't really have a lot of overlap there, so it clearly must be something different going on. So just being in the machine and being happy doesn't really tell you a great deal. And I said the resolution now, it's sort of like narrowing down the activity of a certain area. It's like trying to go into like a Justin Bieber concert 
and finding out who is the most enthusiastic fan by who's screaming the loudest. I mean, you can do it, but it's going to take, right, no, 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 you have to go through 10,000 people and go, no, no, like, record the decibels, and it takes a lot of time and effort. We don't have that sort of resolution with this sort of thing yet. Well, from your research, then, so what, what is, I suppose, the, the evolutionary advantage of happiness, of experiencing happiness? What, what, why, why do we even, mm. why do we require that, having that experience? Well, sort of, in the most fundamental level, it comes from, like, the reward pathway, like the mesolimbic reward pathway, that part produces dopamine, which is why dopamine always gets said, it's the happy chemical, boost it. And I, th I think I said in a recent piece that you can take m Parkinson's medication if you want to boost your dopamine. It, uh, that's what it does. People with Parkinson's generally aren't constantly happy. That's not how it really works. It's more, you know, more specific than that. So that's, part which, uh, that's the part of the brain which lets you experience pleasure as a sensation, like as this is, I like this. It's essentially, in terms of what its purpose is, is to reward you for experiencing or doing things which are beneficial. It's like you're hungry, you eat something, you experience pleasure. You're thirsty, you drink something, you experience pleasure. And then you, so you find a safe place to live with nothing, no dangers, that's good. You are content, you're relaxed there. Your threat detection system isn't firing madly like they would in sort of a strange new environment. And this is all stuff which produces a sense of either immediate pleasure or the sense of relaxation. But when now we have these massively big brains which can perceive the world and contemplate it in so many different ways. There are so many different ways to achieve this end goal of if I do this, if I earn some money, I understand that and I have resources in which to survive, therefore I'm happy. If I have more money, I'll be able to do more things which will make me happy and then that makes you happier again. And So yeah, it's sort of, it's like a motivator in terms of to encourage you to do things which are beneficial or good for you. But because we're so complex now, there are certain things which trigger it which aren't good for us. I think in chapter six they discuss the <coughs> the darker side, and that if you you can sit there and eat deep-fried foods all day, you'll enjoy it, but it's not good for you. It'll slowly kill you, and that's not good. It does make you happy. But if someone tells you, if you don't do that and you eat more salad, you will have cleaner arteries and you live for a long time. That You can appreciate that on a cognitive level, but it has no emotional impact, or it doesn't, it doesn't have any sensory valence. It doesn't trigger the reward pathway because nothing has really happened. You're just, you're just aware of something. That's why this whole thing of a raising awareness of issues and illnesses doesn't necessarily have the impact you hoped it would because you can understand something on a basic level but you still end up doing the opposite like you can say alcohol is bad for you i know yes i am not going to stop it no no <laughs> no I so, so this goes back to the idiot brain doesn't it really which mm. is because it's not a teleological universe yeah. that at, at the point where the brain is going uh well done <coughs> do that again mm. there wasn't expected that it would be such a rapid rise you know there's no idea mm. of a rapid rise of civilization and suddenly you'll be able to buy chicken in a bucket <laughs> you know the idea is it's going to take a lot of calories to get that one gazelle mm. not go we've got gazelle in a bucket it's great <laughs> don't worry about it so so that that's where is that basically where the happy brain become and the idiot brain collide there which is this was a reward mechanism that mm. was had an advantage. Yeah, most of that is still the case, because I, I think that's the big part of the idiot brain, the first one, which obviously it's, uh, you build on the original stuff, which is kind of relevant, because we, have, we still have the fundamental areas of the brain, like the, the, the limbic system is sort of connects the, the higher function of human stuff with the underlying fundamental animal, or like the reptile brain, as they call it, the part which is basic physiology or basic rewards for a sense of fear, like it triggers this response, but now those underlying systems haven't really changed in millions of years. But we developed these massive brains in like three, in three million or two and a half million years. Which is in, in, in an evolutionary sense, it's almost overnight. It's like Peter Parker being bitten by a spider, waking up next morning, I got powers now, what do I do with this? And that's sort of how we are as a species in terms of, okay, I can think about things now. 
I like cheese. And I, <laughs> I do like cheese, but that's by the by. But but it's it, it's sort of like it's, there's lots of interaction and overlap between it. So now we can, but now the underlying fundamental bits are recognizing the signals from the complex bits and sort of treating them exactly the same. So now you can be afraid of losing your job. Now in a in a, in a very visceral sensory sense, there's nothing happening. Like someone says, oh, the boss is rumored to talk to someone from another company, there might be a buyout. It's just a rumor, you hear that, you're suddenly afraid for your job. Nothing's happened. You just hear some someone say a few, a few words. There's no actual danger there in a sort of physical sense, but the same part of your brain which is responsible for like, oh, tigers, run. That's still doing the same response for high-bro intellectual potential threats. And same thing with happiness, like as in I, I'm happy because I'm in this place now. I like it here. I'll be able to meet this, do that, do that. and you, you don't know. It, it could, nothing could pan out. You, could, you get a new job. You know, nothing's happened yet. But you just suddenly feel a sense of good. I've done what I want to do. Awesome. Yeah. Well, there's something when talking about that and, and thinking about, for instance, you know, the, the easy access of fast food and all, which is you talk a little bit in the book about the gap between the downside. So, if someone here eats, say, a piece of salmon that makes them violently sick. The brain, basically, for a while, even though you know it might have been for many different reasons, mm. when you see it, oh no, I d oh god, no, I don't want to eat that. Whereas things like smoking, things like eating, you know, very highly sugared foods, or all those things, what is it, what's the problem in terms of the distance of time between actually the downside, so the sickness, the illness? Mm. It's because the, the underlying, <coughs> pardon me, the underlying mechanisms which like govern the learning of most creatures of like above a certain level, like all the mammals for essential, like the associative learning, the Pavlov's dog stuff. It's like, it's an unconscious connection. Like, so this happens, but then this happens, and the brain sort of knits the two together. I heard a bell, got some food, ah, bell means food now. And that's a very fundamental system, it uh, guides a lot of learning, but it has to be within a certain time frame. It depends, well, I think it depends what species it is. So if, like I say in the book, if you touch an oven, you go, ow, that's on, it's hot, move your hand away, don't touch the oven again touch the oven, and two weeks later you go, ow, like, how was that? And then you, you know, in, in the interim, you've touched the oven 15 times and held a boiling kettle and juggled with fire and stuff, and oh, that was all bad, I should have done that. But you wouldn't have learned that in time, so you know, it, it, it has to be a certain narrow span of time to, to make the association between doing that is bad. So you smoke, you get the immediate rush of benefit, whatever, whatever it gives to you. I've tried smoking, it didn't do anything for me, so I can't relate. Not even a joke, I just didn't. Um, so like that's fine, but then you, 20 years down the line, you get some sort of lung cancer or some sort of emphysema, then the brain doesn't make that, you, you can appreciate it on an intellectual level, but unless it happens right away, you can, you know, the brain also has an optimistic bias in that we always assume, unless you've got depression or some, some other disorder which flips things around, we, we tend to assume things will go okay. So it also leads to the planning fallacy in that we, um, we always assume a journey we've done before will take less time if we, even though we've done it, if you think you know, if you left the airport 20 times before, you always got there three hours later, you think, but you know it's a two-hour journey, you go, oh, it'll take two hours. You, do, you always forget, you always have an optimistic bias towards things you've done before. That's one of the reasons that keeps us happy at the fundamental level. So you think, well, I'm smoking, I might get cancer, but I probably won't, because you know, like, not everyone does, so I'll be fine. And it's like an instinctive thing. But also on the flip side, there's also a risk aversion. If you decide to change your behaviors, your attitudes, or your lifestyle, you'll be far more unlikely to do something which uh, which has a potential risk than if the reward's not big enough. It's not like a perfectly balanced thing. Like, if I do this, I'll have this much reward. It has to be, if I do this, I would need this much reward to do it. So it's, a, it's, it's no sort of logical to approach to it. It's, very, it's, it's all like a, a mixture of different factors that work at once. 
Now, going back to, you were mentioning dopamine, but also in the book you talk about oxytocin. And oxytocin, I think, you know, many people who may well have gone through childbirth, oxytocin is talked about a great deal there. Mm. And what I think is it oxytocin, which you basically say is, is gives five times greater reward than heroin. Uh, no, that's endorphins. Is it endorphins? Yeah. So, so, so first of all, what's the difference between what goes on with the oxytocin? What goes on with endorphins? Endorphins are so like they are like the opiate system, and those are the receptors that heroin and that sort of thing works on. It sort of triggers that deep you know, visceral pleasure response. Like you know, someone in a heroin high is all like, Ugh. I mean, again, I've I've seen films. I'm assuming they're realistic, <laughs> and they're all Scottish. Weird. Yeah. And um, well, can you actually <laughs> explain actually why you're on on that? that so. What happens in the brain when someone takes heroin? What is, what is going on? At that, that point, when it goes into the bloodstream, what happens in terms of actual structure? Well, a lot of, a lot of research says it's almost the same as what, what happens in the brain when an orgasm occurs. It's, like, it's almost like a whiteout of the reward pathway has been so stimulated that everything else gets so sort of like washed out. It's like looking into a flash. It's like, oh, like you can't really see anything for a while. It's like, it shuts things down. So... Uh, the endorphins can do that. That seems to be what they are evolved for. If you're in extreme distress, like they release a lot during childbirth, and people like to run marathons, they hit the wall and then suddenly go, uh, run as high. That's like the body, this brain going, right, this is too much now. Okay, I'm shutting anything off. We'll get through this later. And that's why if you see like all the 80s action films of Sloan and Schwarzenegger, they do that whole thing of like in the middle of a gun battle, they've been shot left, right, and center, not even flinching. And afterwards, the, the dainty woman just sponges them down and goes, ooh. Ah, <laughs> that sort of is how it works. Because the endorphin rush has worn off. Then they're like, "Ooh, sensitive now. <laughs> let's do, let's do kissing." And that's sort of you know, how it, that's the cliche. But it is actually f scientifically valid in a sense. So, um, so that's what that. Which do you think is the most scientifically valid of the Arnold Schwarzenegger films? <laughs> <laughs> Predator. <laughs> Aliens always have green blood. It's well known. <laughs> But so, so this is, I mean, you talk a little bit about drugs in this book, and we should say that the answer to happiness is not taking heroin. No. Uh, not long term. No. no. The, uh, <laughs> the, well, that's the interesting thing, which yeah. is uh, where you talk about the, you know, the reward system that our bodies have. It seems that it will continue to work, but the reward system that happens with addiction, uh, it becomes, the negative becomes far greater than the positive. Yeah. It, again, because like a lot of this, this was a lot harder to write in the first one because I was learning new stuff, which I thought I'd stop having to do after I got my doctorate. I thought, that, that's done now, surely that's enough. No, apparently. And that was interesting because it, it seems a more recent thing, but there's also an anti-reward system. It's not quite as stark and fundamental as the reward system. It's not like, which is just like a big tract of nerves right in the middle of the brain. It's, it incorporates the stress response, the fight or flight response, but it sort of is active whenever we experience intense pleasure. It's... Because most of the brain is sort of balanced in some ways. Even like the visual system is like a yes and no. Or like, or like muscles, there's a contract and contract. There's no on and off. It's like one balances the other one. And there's a sort of an anti-reward system which takes the edge off pleasure. I think what it looks like in case of it becoming too addictive, becoming sort of too overwhelming. And the more drugs you take, the more you adapt to the reward system, adapt to it. But the anti-reward system gets stronger and stronger to try and discourage you. So when you're in the throes of a big heroin addiction, you're not trying to experience pleasure anymore. You are trying to achieve normal. It's like you've dug a deep hole and you have to climb up every single hit, get you right back to like surface level. And that's obviously, that's not a happy existence. It's a deep, deeply bleak one. And that's sort of where that comes into it. In that the, the reward system isn't meant to be constantly active. That's I think the idea of lasting eternal happiness isn't helpful. It'll, it'll make everything sort of mute, moot point. You know, 
you talk like post-death, afterlife, heaven stuff, that's different, that's not science. But the idea of someone achieving lasting happiness now, being constantly happy in every moment, isn't a good idea because the reward system will take over every part of your brain and then you can't do anything. And that's not good. So this is, I mean, Max Wall, the great clown and comedian Max Wald once talked about that. He said, people say, are you happy? And I think what ridiculous thing, because happy is, it's a very kind of transient thing. There are yeah. moments where you have a beautiful burst. Of contentment, though, on the other hand, which is not necessarily what your book's about, but finding that, I mean, in your, you cover in each chapter different parts of the sex and, and, and work, also the change of our brain uh, over time and why, the, whether when you're a child, when you're an adolescent, when you're an adult, and when, when you, you become um, old. So we'll look at work a little. I mean, where do you get your greatest happiness? Because you don't, in the book, you kind of, there's, there's not that many moments where you actually really talk about your specific moments of, of, of happiness and, and then work back from there. No, I, I realised that, looking back at it, and I thought, <coughs> pardon me, I didn't want to make it autobiographical too much because... I don't think I'm an interested person, so it would have been like this chapter on the sex chapter thing. I'm not going to talk about my sex life, not because I'm shy, because it's just utterly dull. Like it, you can, I can By the way, his in-laws are in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like case in point. Case in point. Which may um, well be why he said that. By the way, the in-laws. I promise you, it's very dull. Anyway, <laughs> the, uh, we've only done it twice. That's the only evidence so far. Yeah. Two children. So. Yeah. So th when you're talking about, you mentioned there about dreams and hopes and that the importance of that, of not f of, of feeling... Is this why, in, in later on in the book, when you talk about the, 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 the changing stages of happiness, the fact that when people... The midlife crisis, middle age, is a point where some of your youthful dreams are now appearing highly... Yeah, when you're 16, you can say, my band are going to play the O2. <coughs> when you're 48, you can begin to think that it's looking less likely. <laughs> and so that moment of going, of, of realising that the perpetual hope and dream, that you're going to might have to rebuild your dreams and change <coughs> those dreams. Yeah, it does. That will be a big part of it because the brain sort of builds up a mental model of how the world works. Like, based on all your experiences, all your beliefs, all your assumptions, all your opinions, these are all combined into sort of a general running simulation of, right, this is how the world works, this is how it's going to happen, when I do this, this will occur. It's sort of how we navigate just life in general, because obviously you can't process and renew everything in differently each time. So that's sort of how it works. But then if you have this idea of, right, I am going to be a rock star, I'm going to be the prime minister, I'm going to be big CEO, Again, when you're, when you're younger, you can reconcile that with... It's not happened yet, but it's going to happen. So you, that's still consistent with your worldview, your mental model of the world. But I say when you get to your mid-40s and you're not that, you're the right, all available evidence suggests that this isn't going to happen now. So you can either cling to it. Some people do that. You can then... So the brain can sometimes undergo sort of a sense of dissonance in that, well, actually, no, I never wanted that. I definitely wanted to be a middle manager from hell. That was always my ambition. And, uh, <laughs> and then people start taking their jobs really seriously, become, like, jobs worth. Or... Most men, as we know, they will also think, no, actually, I'm not old. That's the thing. I am still very young and virile. Yeah. That's definitely what's happening. I have plenty of time. I have met a few comedians who are almost like, their picture should be in the medical dictionary next to midlife crisis. It's amazing. Like, so, yeah, that, those, are, those are nice skinny jeans. Yes, yellow lenses, very good. That's a Macklet goatee. And how old are you again? Oh, your grandson's birthday. Okay, that was good. Yes, that's, <coughs> that's, that's, that's really disturbing. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so it's, sort of, it's a way of sort of trying to, maintain your because the brain doesn't like to change its plans and its goals and its, its, its beliefs that's why core beliefs are so hard especially now with political climates and all the polarization of both this country the u.s everywhere else and people will deny everything they can for like if, even if, if the world intrudes onto your fantasy it doesn't just go oh you, you won't just drop it you go right no i must dig my heels and say no that's wrong because even the most elaborate explanation where if it's like no i am going to be successful i am still 
fit and virile, even though clearly I'm not. You know, mirrors just confirm that. And that's you, know, you, you still maintain that level of no, 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 no. I can't shift because if you change your mind, if you this, if you abandon these ideals, I mean, every decision you've made with these in mind is technically wrong. So like you've essentially wasted your life, and that is more than most people in their brain are willing to put up with. It is a disturbing thing when middle-aged men, and I am one of them, don't realise how old they actually are. When, when I see, and you mentioned comedians, not just comedians, but when you see men in their 50s mm. uh, and they're being flirtatious with people who may well be in their early 20s or younger, and you go, do you realise what that human being is actually seeing? <laughs> it's, do, 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 do you realise? It, it, it's, it's a, it's a strange... I mean, that, how much is that? That self-delusion. Can that lead to happiness? Because I've seen that. A friend of mine was going, I can't believe it. This waitress, she called me sir. I went, you're 55. <laughs> when we were that age, we went to 55-year-olds and we went, aren't they lucky you've got that far? <laughs> you know, this is, you haven't, this is Harold and Maud, you know. Yeah, it's, it's already, it doesn't need to be much like someone like that if you are like, I'm still attractive to the ladies and say, all right. It's like, you know, like a, um, like a, a member of bar staff saying, oh, nice night, like, Oh, yeah, here we go. See, she likes me. That's sort of like harmless. It's a, it's a little sense of personal validation that does make you happier because, see, young lady spoke to me, didn't tell me to get out of the house or anything, or like, didn't pepper spray me once. I'm, I'm on the way up. You're um, taking this into a much darker area than yeah, I was yeah. imagining. Yeah, well, I was just seeing this in a shop. You told me to get more personal. So, yeah. <laughs> so but it, it, there is that sort of element to it, and that you know, people will. It doesn't take much to validate someone either. Like, if you look at the part about love, in that like, people can be catfished. It's sort of you have to think about how weird a phenomenon of the brain that is. You can fall catfished. In, it's that thing where people create an online persona, and then people right. fall in love with them, and then the catfisher then takes advantage of them or takes their money or just stalks them. Whatever their rationale is, I don't really know anyone who does that, as far as I'm aware. And but that still shows that you can. The human brain is capable of falling in love with someone or becoming deeply invested in someone based on a few lines of text, a few exchanges back and forth. I'm going to talk to my friend Karis, and she's doing a show about love and relationships and the science of them all. And she's on Tinder. She comes and goes on Tinder. And it's like, I swiped to this guy, and we just seem so perfect. And, like, and then I had this idea, we're going to get together, and we're going to have three kids, and we're going to live in the Peak District. And like, it's not even this picture. It's a picture of a dog. What's the matter with you? <laughs> and, but so like, she, like, she said, yeah, she, she, she's analyzing it and she's like I'm yeah, I just built up this whole idea that we were going to end up together because we do seem predisposed to forming this sort of we we, we we so validate other people's impression of us like it's a big section about social interaction and social approval we're so sensitive to that like even like the like you said oh, the minus the smallest rejection can be quite painful in a psychological sense the same part of the brain which operates physical pain also operates psychological pain it's not quite the same studies have shown that but it's still an unpleasant sensation even in the study which I <coughs> we talked about that people experience rejection in a virtual ball game, if they were excluded from the game, they always felt a sense of rejection, a sense of hurt, even when logically they shouldn't have. There was like some subjects were black and they were told the people rejecting them were members of the clan. And they still felt like, oh, it's not fair, though, is it? It's not what to play. Like, that's pretty bad that you still want the approval of people who would uh, happily kill you. And it's such a sort of deeply embedded thing. We are so primed to have other people like us. Any sense of being... Know, a sense of social approval is always always makes us a bit happier. We do kind of kind of like that, unless you're a complete misanthrope, as some people are. It's entirely possible. So if you are like someone, also add the whole flirtatious sexual element to it too. That does tend to have a bit more uh, sort of 
weight behind it because it, it also validates you as a, as a physical being and that's, that tends to make us a bit happier. So that is when you talk about people having big dreams of moving to the Peak District, is that part of the issue where also now we are surrounded by possible images of perfection through advertising, through uh, television programmes, through films and therefore when people, for instance, when you see romance in the movies, there can be this perfect arc and that this can be an issue with happiness, is the collision between the fabrication of Hollywood versus the reality of all of those mundane scenes which we don't see in the movies. That, 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 is, that people have perhaps been, in a mass media world, heightened up in terms of what they feel they should expect from life. Definitely, yeah. There's a big part of the thing about the, the relationship escalator. Once you get together with someone, you have to go through these steps or the relationship isn't actually working. Like You have to meet someone, then you have to... <coughs> um, sort of, you have to sort of date them for a certain amount of time, and then you move in together, and then you get married all the way around, and then you have children, but not too many, not too, not not, not too early, and you have to do it by this. Then you have to live in the country by this point. So this idea that we all have this structured life planned out for us, and if we're not conforming to that, we are failing somehow. It's very much a cultural thing that makes us very unhappy when we don't stick to it. But there's no actual physical or biological basis to require it. So that's sort of like a cultural creation, and the whole thing about uh, you know. The idea, like, we, we are sensitive to what we see in the world around us. Our mental model of the world is built up on our experiences. And so many, like I say, so much of Hollywood, the, the rom-com problem in that, like, you know, as a guy, I'm led to believe that if I am vaguely nice to a woman for much more attractive than me for, like, maybe a couple of weeks, and then I'm, so I, I'm there when some other guy hurts her, and I go, uh, then she'll have sex with me. That's how it works, right? That's, that's definitely what happens, apparently. But you see, guys, so many guys seem convinced about that, even though that's not how... Know, it can happen, but it's not, not, not the norm, I'm sure. Imagine what it was like with the people brought up with on the buses. <laughs> who for some reason, if you were a buck-toothed bus conductor <laughs> in your mid-50s, every 18-year-old went, that's who I dream of being with. Yeah. I mean, these were difficult times. <laughs> but this is, this, now you mention that, this is interesting, because you, you mentioned a little bit as well where you said that the um, girl on the net, she has talked about the problems where people have this expectation of her that surely I can have sex with you. And this is just because of, of, of what happened in Toronto last week, mm. where we see this uh, group which is, is called, you know, incel, mm. these uh, men where some people have talked about the fact, you know, that, that they're angry because women won't have sex with them, but it doesn't even merely seem to be like that. It seems to be they've gone, that person is the one that I, you know, it's a very mm. specific, yeah. you know, and, and, and unpleasant and misogynistic. I mean, is this again, is this something that you think has been fed in by mass culture? Well, definitely, yeah. It's like this idea that as like, men, you're supposed to be able to say, well, I want that, I'll have that. And, and not just men, like everyone is told, like, it's, it's a consumer culture, at least in the West, that we are told we can have whatever we want. Like, you can dream big, you'll have whatever you like. And it doesn't happen. It can't happen. It's a big thing about how so, so much of happiness involves other people losing out. So if you want to be the best athlete, you want to be the world's fastest person, you want to marry the most beautiful person, you want to be the richest person, fair enough. But that means nobody else can have those things. Like, someone else always has to lose out for your goal. And that's why so many people are sort of bitter about it, because not everyone can have it. It's a zero-sum game, essentially. You can't... That's not enough to go around. It's like being the richest person, like, people who are very wealthy, saying, oh, you could do it too. Well, I can't, because you've already done it. You've got the mm. money still. You need to get... You need to, can you, if you let it go, well, maybe I'll get some. No, no. You, you, all you got to do is strive, and that's not how anything works. So, like, that does tend to make people unhappy when they have these expectations built up from a young age... <laughs> Just because what we're exposed to, and like this is like I understand the world working this way. That's how your brain predicts things and and, and works around it, like the whole nice guy phenomenon. Like I'm a nice guy. Why? 
why women have sex with you because you don't actually talk to them any at any point and yeah but I don't and you're highly misogynistic yeah, these things that. seem to be issues yes that's um, a, tend, tend to be a problem they're actually autonomous individuals you can't really force them to do stuff and that's sort of like but people don't want to hear that because that's not what they've been led to believe and like when your beliefs are challenged that makes you very unhappy when they conform to that tends to make you happier and that's where it all it all comes into that in a way there's uh, the expectation thing reminds me of the George Carlin line where he said they call it the American dream because you have to be asleep to believe it. The, um, this is, I haven't looked at my notes now because we might as well start because we've got two minutes left. Um, but I would, because there's, well, there's a lot which we hadn't, which uh, we're going to throw out to the audience as well. In fact, we should do it because we have only got yeah. about a, a few minutes left. But I, I was very, you, you do a whole chapter, for instance, on uh, having worked on the comedy circuit and uh, you, you talked to Rod Gilbert and uh, you talked to Barry Dodds and Ian Boldsworth and Wes Packer as well, who mm. was someone. Now, what did you, were you, I mean, I suppose this is the, what have you been most surprised at? Having, as you said, the previous book was a book which was everything you had collated in your mind and the research that you had done over a decade. This book has been a starting point of you going, can I go into a brain scan to find out what makes me happy? No, you can't. You're going to have to go off now. And you went off. What have been the things that have most uh, taken you back, I suppose, in terms of trying to find out what makes us happy? I guess it was the, <coughs> the, um, the role, or sort of the, the really dominant role that other people play in what makes us happy. Not necessarily like other people always make us happy all the time, but... It's such a big influence. Like the, the idea of, like, I, didn't, I never thought before the idea that there are, we have several distinct emotions which only exist in the concept, in the context of other people. The emotion that is guilt, the emotion that is grief. They don't make any sense if you're on your own. If, if you're an individual person who don't think about any other people, like you're only, be, you're only embarrassed by what other people think of you. Like you know, shame is a sense of shame is when you let yourself down. You think, oh, I've done something wrong. That I shouldn't have done that because that that, couldn't, that challenges my own self perception. But embarrassment is like other people are looking at me and judging me negatively, and that's so like a lot, so much of our brain is fundamentally linked to what others around us are doing, and to what they think of us and how they interact with us, and like there's so much of it which is all about empathy and stuff. So think of all the things that make you happy. How many involve other people as well? So if you like fine dining, you really do it alone. If you like going to see plays and shows and stuff, you invariably go with, go with someone. If you sit in the pub drinking, drinking alone, it's normally seen as a sign of a problem rather than. You know, it's fine. It's like you drink dress as much with someone with you. That's fine. That's he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a good lad. And uh, but you do it by yourself. Like oof, he's either alcoholic or in an airport. And that's um, I drink on my own. Yeah. Oh, no, that's home. Yeah. Yeah, I drink on my own. Go to theatre on my own. If I take other people with me, they get in the way of the reading. I don't want that. <laughs> Oh, the, uh, yeah. I mean, you, you have a lot of that. We'll, we'll throw it, so get ready now, because if, you, if you've got a question, because there was one, well, we won't talk about this now, but if you can read the book and find out why James Brown's funk music is more effective in making you happy than listening to free jazz, which is going to annoy Stuart Lee a great deal. That was the point, um, yes. But then again, that may also explain some of his uh, the, the <laughs> onstage demeanour as well. Yeah, but um, <laughs> the, uh, there's a, we haven't discussed most of the book. There is, uh, in terms of looking at the, the adolescent mind, in terms of uh, many of the different ideas of nostalgia and indeed also returning to uh, our memories and, and how you became the human being that you became. We uh, mm. some a very interesting different ideas of, of what can happen in childhood and, and how our experience of happiness changes. So to find out about that, you'll have to read uh, The Happy Brain. And fortunately, uh, there are some copies at the back of the room, aren't mm. there? And yes. uh, you are prepared to sign them. I will. Uh, It'll probably reduce the value, but I will do it. <laughs> like, exactly. There we go. Yeah. Do that. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, the happiest man alive. Team <laughs> for that. Thank you. I got a shirt and everything.
Thank you very much for listening. Patreon.com slash bookshambles to support the show. And remember, you can pre-order Robin's book, I'm a Joke and So Are You, from all the usual sites uh, that you would pre-order a book from. Or you can go to your local independent bookshop and place an order there. That would certainly be the most uh, preferable way to do it. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. (laughs) 